Macmillan Audio presents Good Morning Monster by Catherine Gildener. Read for you by Deborah Burgess. Author's Note I would like to express thanks to the patients I describe in this book. The five patients featured here had very different social backgrounds, came from different cultures, and most importantly, had very different temperaments. Laura and Madeline, from opposite ends of the economic spectrum, were both pure pluck. Danny impressed with his stoical nature. Peter with his forgiveness. Is this too fast, sir, or no? No, I think it's okay. And Alana with her endurance. Each had heroic qualities I longed for. I learned an enormous amount about different coping strategies from them, and used their lessons often. Each one of them altered my psyche for the better. There is no greater generosity than sharing your life story, and I am enormously grateful to these patients. In return, I worked hard to maintain their anonymity. It was crucial that they not be recognizable. This is not a book for academics, but for the general public. Although I wanted the book to be inspirational, I also wanted it to be a learning tool. I have reconstructed our conversations from my session notes with each patient. But in order to clearly delineate the psychological truths that I wanted to illustrate and to camouflage the identity of the patients, I made some people composites by including certain details from some of my other cases if I felt they made a psychological point more clearly. Each case has been shaped into a narrative, so some details are accentuated while others are dropped for the sake of clarity. I thank them all for sharing their battles with me and with others. I'm sure Peter, the musician, spoke for all when he said, if sharing my story helps even one person who is suffering, it will have been worth it. Gratefully, Catherine Gildener. Laura. Hey, Doss. No, good information. My heart is not a home for cowards, D. Antoinette Foy. One, surrounded by the village idiots. The day I opened my private practice as a psychologist, I sat smugly in my office, fortified with the knowledge I'd acquired, taking comfort in the rules I'd learned. I looked forward to having patients I could cure. I was deluded. Fortunately, I had no idea at the time what a messy business clinical psychology was, or I may have opted for pure research, an area where I'd have control over my subjects and variables. Instead, I had to learn how to be flexible as new information trickled in weekly. I had no idea on that first day that psychotherapy wasn't the psychologist solving problems, but rather two people facing each other week after week, endeavoring to reach some kind of psychological truth we could agree on. No one brought this home to me more than Laura Wilkes, my first patient. She was referred to me through a general practitioner, who in his recorded message said, she'll fill you in on the details. I don't know who was more frightened, Laura or I. I was newly transformed from a student in jeans and a t-shirt to a professional, decked out in a silk blouse and a designer suit with linebacker shoulder pads, de rigueur in the early 80s. I sat behind my huge mahogany desk, looking like a cross between Anna Freud and Joan Crawford. Luckily, I had prematurely white hair in my 20s, which added some much-needed gravitas to my demeanor. Laura was barely five feet high, with an hourglass figure, huge almond eyes, and such full lips that had it been 30 years later, I would have suspected Botox injections. She had masses of shoulder-length blonde highlighted hair, and her porcelain skin contrasted sharply with her dark eyes. Perfect makeup, with bright red lipstick, set off her features. She was chic in spike heels, a tailored silk blouse, and a black pencil skirt. She said she was 26, single, and working in a large securities firm. She'd started out as a secretary, but had been promoted to the Human Resources Department. When I asked how I could help her, Laura sat for a long time looking out the window. I waited for her to tell me the problem. I continued to wait, in what's called a therapeutic silence, an uncomfortable quiet that's supposed to elicit truth from the patient. Finally, she said, I have herpes. I asked, herpes zoster or herpes... It does. No. Plex. The kind you get if you're totally filthy. Sexually transmitted, I translated. When I asked whether her sexual partner knew he had herpes, Laura replied that Ed, her boyfriend of two years, had said he didn't. However, she'd found a pill vial in his cabinet that she recognized as the same medication she'd been prescribed. When I questioned her about this, she acted as though it was normal, and that there wasn't much she could do about it. She said, 
That's Ed. I've already ripped a strip off, and what more can I do? That blase reaction suggested that Laura was used to selfish and duplicitous behavior. That was behavior. too fast. I couldn't hear what she said. And referred to me, she said, because the strongest medication wasn't limiting the constant outbreaks, and her doctor thought she needed psychiatric help. But Laura was clear about having no desire to be in therapy. She just wanted to get over the herpes. I explained that in some people, stress is a major trigger for attack. That's it. of the latent virus she said i know what the word stress means but i don't know exactly how it feels i don't think i have it i just keep on keeping on surrounded by the village idiots not much had bothered her in her life laura told me although she did acknowledge that the herpes had shaken her like nothing else first i tried to reassure her by letting her know that one in six people aged 14 to 49 has herpes her response was so what we're all in the same filthy swamp switching tacks i told her i understood it does why she was upset a man who purported to love her had betrayed her plus she was in pain in fact she could barely sit the worst part was the shame forever after she'd have to tell anyone she ever slept with that she had herpes or was a carrier laura agreed but the worst aspect for her was that although she'd done everything possible to rise above her family circumstances she was now wallowing in filth just as they always had it's like quicksand she said no matter how hard Hey, Grandpa, can I call you back at, like, uh, two-something? Or, like, like, three? Yeah. Okay. Getting sucked back in. I know. I've almost died trying. When I asked her to tell me about her family, she said she wasn't going to go into all that bilge. Lord. So what do you think about that? You know, she asked her about her family and stuff. What do you think about that? Is that what you would do or what? Well, see, first of all, the person really doesn't want to be in therapy and therefore doesn't want to be have the problems resolved so I, w I wouldn't do anything I would just make it very clear that, that she, she, there's no evidence that she's interested in receiving any help mm -hmm. yeah, how do you know that she doesn't want to how do you know that's, no. just, that's just not a, a guard that she's putting up just a front that she's putting up to try to be maybe because, because she's been through so much no, she doesn't want to appear like she she wants help and stuff, but really she does. So how do you know that? Well, I don't know, but see, that's a way of checking it out. See, how how she responds to that will will reveal. You see, you see, but what, I, what I'm saying, clearly. what I'm saying is, you don't. What people say doesn't necessarily mean that's what they mean. People don't know what they want, and people will will put on fronts and they'll say things. So I'm saying like. If you were a really good therapist and you might even approach, even if she says, I don't want therapy, you might even continue it. Even if she says that because you might discern that she really does, you know, why she did it in the first well, place. Well, it's very clear. You see, I, I already know that a person wants to be healed, wants to be in the flow. I already know that. But they don't know it. Any other thing? explained that she was a practical person and wanted to decrease her stress, whatever that was, so that she could get the painful herpes under control. She'd planned to attend this one session where I'd either give her a pill or cure her of stress. I broke the news to her that stress or anxiety was occasionally easy to relieve, but could sometimes be intransigent. I explained that we'd need to have a number of appointments so that she could learn what stress is and how she experienced it, uncover its source, and then find ways to alleviate it. It was possible, I told her, that so much of her immune system was fighting stress that there was nothing left to fight the herpes virus. I can't believe... It does? 
That's good information. Leave, I have to do this. I feel like I came to have a tooth pulled, and by mistake, my whole brain came with it. Laura looked disgusted, but she finally capitulated. Okay, just book me for one more appointment. It's difficult to treat a patient who isn't psychologically oriented. Laura just wanted her herpes cured, and in her mind, therapy was a means to that end. Nor did she want to give a family history, since she had no idea how it would be relevant. There were two things I hadn't anticipated on my first day of therapy. First, how could... Hey, Dust? <clears throat> no. You think that she's a, she's a difficult patient, or what, hey, Dust? Well, no, she, she, she's very desperate, but she already has her mind made up as to what she needs. This she woman needs not to know. confront eventually that, that, um, that her homemade plan isn't going to work. What stress is. Second, I'd read hundreds of case studies, watched lots of therapy tapes, attended dozens of grand rounds, and in none of them did the patient refuse to give a family history. Even when I worked the night shift in psychiatric hospitals, where they warehoused the lost psychological souls in back wards, I'd never heard anyone object. Even if they said, as one did, that she was from Nazareth and her parents were Mary and Joseph, they gave a history. Now, my very first patient had refused. I realized that I'd have to proceed in... It does. Do you think that's important to get a history? Well, it could be. There, there's no formula for that. Sometimes it can be very helpful. And why is it helpful, you does? Well, it's a way of, of, of assisting the person in becoming receptive. Or as weird way, and at her own pace, where she'd be gone. I remember writing on my clipboard. Also, by knowing the history, don't you aren't you able to like glean aspects like psychological aspects of the person and like first off by by listening to his story and then also by understanding you know the the water in which he floated his boat and you know perhaps traumas and stuff. Any thoughts? Oh yeah, yeah. That's why I say it could be very helpful. My first task is to engage Laura. Freud has a concept called transference, the feelings a patient develops for her therapist, that he said was the cornerstone of therapy. Countertransference is what the therapist comes to feel for a patient. Over my decades in private practice, I've found that if you don't honestly like your patient, if you're not rooting for her, the patient senses it, and the therapy flounders. There's a chemical bond between patient and therapist. It doesn't? Yeah, that's very clear. ...that neither of you can will into being. Other therapists may disagree, but I think they're fooling themselves. I was in luck. I related to Laura right off the bat. Her plucky stride, her emphatic speech, and her no-nonsense manner reminded me of myself. Despite her 60-hour work week, she was going to university at night, crawling ahead course by course. At the age of 26, she was moving toward a degree in commerce. It does? No, she was... She was persistent and determined, plus also pushy and demanding. At our next session, Laura came in carrying four books on stress. They bristled with yellow post-it notes. She was also lugging a huge flip chart on which she'd drawn an elaborate color-coded graph. Across the top, she'd written, stress, multiple question marks. Below this were several columns, the first colored in red and titled, dealing with assholes. A number of assholes were listed in subcategories. One was her boss, Clayton. Another was her boyfriend, Ed. 
A third was her father. Hey, does? No. Now that she'd read the book. I mean, that's judgmental, but at the same time, it could be discerning or what? Hey, does? She, she could be. Huh? Well, yeah. She, it could be discerning, but at this point, for her, it's being judgmental. But, but she could be, like, just making light of the situation, like, kind of having fun, right? Like, you know, rather than... It could like, be being, what? Just making light of the situation, like, kind of having fun, like, not taking herself so seriously, like, rather than being, like, dealing with people who have immature software, you know, but, but just being, like, joking and, like, kind of light about it, like, dealing with assholes, like, hey, does. Yeah, it could be. On stress, Laura told me she was trying to locate the cause of it in her life. She'd worked all week on the chart. When I commented that no women had been included, she looked at it carefully and said, Interesting. That's true. I don't know any asshole women. I guess if I meet any, I just avoid them or don't let them get under my skin. I pointed out that we were coming closer to defining what the word stress meant to her and asked for an example of what qualified these men to be on her list. They're people who don't follow any rules and really don't give a shit about making things work, she told me. I said I'd like to construct a history of her life to date, especially since her father was on the list. When Laura heard this, she rolled her eyes almost into her head. I plowed on, asking Laura what her most vivid memory of her father was. She immediately said it was when she'd fallen off a slide when she was four years old and slit her foot on a sharp piece of metal. Her father tenderly picked... Hey, does. Her father what? Tenderly did what? Well, she's going to say it, but what do, you, what do you think about her asking about her father? Like, what do you think about that, hey, does? Well, that can be interesting information. Would you do that? Is that helpful or? Well, I don't know. Yeah, it doesn't. No. Her up and carried her to the hospital for stitches. When they were in the waiting room, a nurse remarked on the terrible gash Laura had and how she was being a real trooper for not whining. Her father put his arm around Laura, hugged her, and said, "That's my girl. I'm proud of her. She never complains and is as strong as a horse." Laura was given a powerful message that day, one she'd never forgotten. A declaration of love and affection that depended on her being strong and not complaining. When I pointed out that double edge, Laura said, Everyone is loved for something. Clearly the notion of unconditional love, the idea that your parents would love you no matter what you did, was a foreign concept to her. When I asked about her mother, Laura said only that she died when she was eight. Then when I asked... Hey, does? No, but back to the father's seat. See, she, he, he was communicating to her a subtle message that that you need to merit respect and, uh, and affirmation rather than communicating just his, his concern and, and his love for her. Yeah, it doesn't? No. So, so what do you think about the idea of unconditional love? Is that important? Or? Yes. Absolutely. It's seeing I am my brother's brother. Yeah, doesn't it? No. She was like, Laura said only two words, ones that I thought were a bit unusual, remote and Italian. She could not retrieve a single memory of her. After I depressed a bit, she said only that when she was four, her mother had given her a toy stove for Christmas and had smiled when Laura opened it. Nor was she sure how her mother had died. I actually had to suggest that she elaborate. She'd been fine in the morning. Then my younger brother and sister and I came home from school, and there was no lunch, which was strange. I opened the door to my parents' bedroom, and she was sleeping. I shook her and then rolled her over. 
I can still visualize the marks on her face from the chenille bedspread. I didn't call my dad because I didn't know where he worked. I told my brother and sister to go back to school. Then I called 911. The police found her father and brought him home in a police car. They covered my mother's face with a blanket that was stamped property of Toronto East General Hospital. I have no idea why I remembered that, she said. Then the men carried her on a gurney down the stairs, and my mother's corpse disappeared. Wasn't there a wake or a funeral? I don't think so. My father went out, and then it was dark, past supper time, and there was no food made. Laura figured out that it was her job to make the dinner. It does? And to let the younger siblings know that their mother had died. When she told her six-year-old sister, she cried. But her five-year-old brother had no reaction, other than to ask if Laura was going to be their mother now. Her mother's family didn't come to the funeral, nor did they help their grandchildren. My mother had never talked about it, but I gathered from my dad's snide comments that they'd basically disowned her, Laura explained. She said they were real Italians, you know, the kind that wandered around Little Italy in black outfits mourning someone for most of their lives. My mother was the only girl in a family of five boys, and she wasn't allowed out of the house past the age of ten. She had to stay home and cook and clean. She could go shopping with her mother, but she could never go out alone. One of the brothers had to walk her to and from school every day. Despite the strictness of her upbringing, Laura's mother managed to become pregnant at 16. It does? Laura's father, a Canadian of Scottish descent, was, according to the Italian family, a young hoodlum who impregnated her when he was 17. Her brothers beat him to a pulp and said they would kill him if he didn't marry her. After the wedding day, not one of her family ever saw her again. Laura was born five months after the wedding. Her sister was born 20 months later, and her brother arrived one year after that. When I asked Laura if she ever went to Little Italy to visit her grandparents, she said she had no interest in them. I wondered if Laura's mother had been clinically depressed and therefore emotionally unavailable. Who wouldn't be depressed if not traumatized, having had an overprotective childhood dominated by violent males and then marrying a man who didn't want to marry her, who was himself inadequate, possibly emotionally and physically abusive, who resented and ignored her. Her parents had disowned her, never forgiving her for shaming them. She had nowhere to turn. When I questioned Laura about her mother's death, It does? No. Expecting a suicide. She said she had no idea what had happened. As far as she knew, there was no autopsy. Unbelievably, for the duration of her four years in therapy, being given the toy stove would remain Laura's only memory of her mother. Over that time, I had her free associate, write a journal about her mother, go visit her grave. And still, there was only a blank. We returned to Laura's father. It's interesting how little girls get toy stoves and boys get, like, toy trucks and stuff, you know? It does. Yeah, it's very cultural in the following session. He'd been a car salesman, she told me, but had lost that job when she was little. There were always problems with alcohol, gambling, and misunderstandings. Despite being a handsome blue-eyed blonde, quite smart and charismatic, he'd become downwardly mobile. The year after the mother died, the father moved the family to Bob Cajun, an area northeast of Toronto. Laura thought he was avoiding men in Toronto who were pursuing him, but she wasn't sure. To make money, he opened a chip truck serving the summer cottagers. The sister and brother played in the parking lot while Laura opened the pot and served the fries. He called her his right-hand man. They lived in a small cottage outside of town, owned by a family who had a number of modest cabins scattered in isolated spots throughout the woods on their property. The three siblings began school there in September, when Laura was nine. The chip business dried up when the cottagers left. They bought a small heater for the one-room cottage and huddled around it. Laura recalled that two men appeared at the door on one occasion, demanding money for the chip truck. But her father hid in the bathroom. 
it was Laura's job to get rid of them. Then one day in late November, her father said he was driving into town for cigarettes. He never came back. The children had no food and only two sets of clothes. Laura expressed no fear or anger or feelings of any sort when relating this story. She didn't want to tell anyone they'd been abandoned for fear of being placed in foster care. So she just kept to their routines. The cabins deep in the forest in Lake Country were owned by a family who had three children. The mother, Glenda, had been nice to Laura when she played with their daughter, Kathy. The father, Ron, was a quiet man who had often kindly taken Laura's six-year-old brother, Craig, fishing with his own son. Tracy, Laura's younger sister, whined all the time, Laura said with much annoyance. Tracy wanted to go to Glenda and Ron's house to say that someone had taken their father and to ask if they could live with them. Laura, unlike her younger siblings, knew that her father had abandoned them. He was backed into a corner, owing money and God knows what else, she said. Hey, does. When the children misbehaved after their mother died, the father had threatened to leave them with an orphanage, and Laura realized that it wasn't an idle threat. All she knew was that it was her job to make things work. When I asked how she felt about being abandoned, Laura looked at me as though I were being melodramatic. She said, We weren't exactly abandoned. My dad knew I was there to deal with things. You were nine years old, penniless, and alone in a forest. What would you call it? I said. I guess technically it was abandonment, but my dad had to get out of Bog Cajun. He didn't want to leave us. He had no choice. At that moment, I realized how bonded Laura was to her dad, and how carefully she had defended herself from any feelings of loss. Bonding is the universal tendency for animals and humans to attach, to seek closeness to a parent, and to feel safe when that person is present. Laura didn't remember having any... Hey, does it? No, that's feelings very true. ...at the time. All she had were plans. In other words, she'd let her survival instinct take over. After all, she had two little children to feed and clothe over a Canadian winter in the wilderness. Laura would go on to deride my constant inquiring about her feelings, indicating more than once that feelings are luxuries for people who live a cushy life and don't have to, as she put it, use their wits. I could relate to what Laura said about plans versus... What do you think about that, Atos? That's very common to rely on your feelings instead of taking responsibility regardless of your feelings. Yeah, but but this girl was like, yeah, I don't care about my feelings, you know. That's for people who who live cushy lives, you know. I have to live by my wit, you know. But so so she didn't rely on her feelings at all because she had to like get rid of her feelings. Was that because she was born that way? Do you think? And she had that tendency, like personality, or do you think it was because? of what she had to go through and and she had to learn to be like that because feelings may have been too overwhelming for her ethos yeah that's very possible so but but it's also very clear it's also very clear that that some of us have tend to be more action oriented and some of us tend to be more feeling oriented emotional oriented some of them more intellectual and neither feeling nor action oriented you kind of look down upon the feelings thing. So did she do a good job in, in tuning down her feelings or was she repressing her feelings in fact? Oh, I don't know. Feelings. When I'd experienced a reversal of fortune in my own life, I had no time to explore my feelings of family. But when I was a young teenager, my infinitely sensible father, who owned his own business, began acting mentally ill. We discovered that he had an inoperable brain tumor. When I called his accountant, he revealed that my father had since lost all his money. I had to stay in school and get two jobs to help support the family. I, like Laura, honestly have no memory of any feelings of any sort. 
my mind was totally occupied with what had to be done to make ends meet. Early on in Laura's thing. Hey, boss. No. I joined a peer supervision group, a group of psychologists who get together to discuss cases and try to give one another pointers. And was surprised when the majority of them thought I wasn't accessing enough of Laura's feelings, that I was buying into her defenses. I realized that I had to investigate my own mind to make sure that my reaction to trauma hadn't colored our therapy. Hey, Dawson. You think that's true that you have to access the feelings and stuff? Hey, does. Well, again, there's, there's no uh, formula for that. Sometimes it could be very appropriate and very helpful. On the one hand, my peers may have been right. On the other, I wanted to ask them if they'd ever been up against the proverbial wall, when without a 24-7 focus on their circumstances, they could come to serious harm. Nothing concentrates the mind like the need for survival. <laughs> However, there is no denying that not having access to Laura's feelings made therapy difficult. I quickly realized that my first job wasn't to interpret her feelings, but to access her feelings. Later, I'd interpret them. When I wrote in my notes that first month, I summed it up this way. I have a client who does not want to engage in therapy, does not clearly remember her mother of eight years, which is unheard of in the literature, has no idea what stress is but wants to get rid of it, and had no accessible feelings when she was abandoned. I've got a lot of work ahead. As Laura continued to describe her ordeal, it was evident that she'd kept a clear head. She realized that most of the cabins had already been cleaned for the winter, so she and her siblings moved to one of the remotest, not likely to be open till spring. They took the heater with them. She knew they had to keep to their routines or they'd be detected, so they'd walk down the road nearly a mile every day to take the school bus. Laura would talk about her dad to the outside world as though he were back at the cabin, and instructed her brother and sister to do the same. So, you were left alone to live in a cabin at the ages of nine, seven, and six, I said. If you're looking for stressful events, that could go on the list. First of all, it's over, and second, I'm still standing, Laura countered. Nine really isn't that young. How long did this go on? Six or seven months. At the end of our session, I summed up how I viewed the situation. You have been brave. Your life sounds like it's been difficult, and at times frightening. You were abandoned, alone in the woods, and responsible for two younger children whom you were too young to parent, I said. It has all the perils of Hansel and hey, Gretel without the breadcrumbs. The guy has just arrived, so I'll talk to you later. Are they... <laughs> yeah, does it? Yeah, that was my thought. Yeah, he, he had not yet finished speaking. These people were uh, answered while their words were still upon their tongues. Abraham's servant, Eliezer, Moses, and Solomon. Regarding Eliezer, the verse states, he had not yet finished speaking. And look, um, Rebecca came out. Uh, regarding Moses, the verse states, uh, after his authority had been challenged by Korah. As soon as he finished speaking all these words, the earth beneath them split open. Regarding Solomon, the verse states that at the inauguration of the Holy Temple, when Solomon finished speaking to God, the fire descended from heaven. In fact, it appears that Eliezer's prayer was even greater than that of Moses or Solomon, since they were only answered after finish, finishing speaking, whereas Eliezer had not yet finished speaking when Rebecca came out of with a pitcher on her shoulder. Any thoughts? No. Uh, she said, I will also draw water from your camels. You must not eat before first feeding your animals. How does the Talmud's ruling square with Rebecca's actions here, giving giving Eliezer uh, to drink before his camels? Any thoughts? Mm -hmm. Kabbalah bites. 
The story of Rebecca and Isaac's union is associated with numerous miracles and is repeated in all its detail. Because this union in the story of the Torah itself, the marriage of the higher Isaac's lineage and the lower Rebecca's lineage, Isaac was born in holiness, never left the Holy Land, and was all but offered as a sacrifice on an altar. Rebecca, on the other hand, stemmed from an idol-worshipping family outside the land of Israel. In our own lives, this represents a marriage of good intention higher and good action lower. Each on their own is noble and fine, but only when they are wedded together do we fulfill our destiny. Any thoughts? Um, this requirement to feed your animal before yourself stems from the differing claims to food by animals used by man. Ideally, all creation would have a rightful claim to find sustenance through minimal effort because the one who gives life ought to provide sustenance too. Man, however, forfeited his this right because of his sins. God no longer feeds man because of his rightful claim, but simply as an act of charity. Any thoughts? Animals, on the other hand, never lose their right to be fed without effort, since they do not sin. You must, therefore, feed your animal before yourself, since the animal has a stronger claim to the food than you. Any thoughts? Do you think that's true? Yeah. However, uh -huh. see, that's, that's just making all kinds of formulas out of, out of incidental things. I, I, it just doesn't make sense to me. So it says, however, this distinction is only applicable when applied to yourself, for every man knows that he is not without sin. But when it comes to feeding others, then a man takes priority over his animal because we must give our fellow the benefit of the doubt and assume he is without sin. Therefore, Rebecca gave Eliezer to drink before her, his camels. Any thoughts? No. Kabbalah by Same thought. It says, Eliezer's lineage is described as cursed because his soul was trapped among the Kelipot demonic forces. But through his outstanding dedication to Abraham, Eliezer's soul was redeemed from cursed to blessed. Nevertheless, this redemption was not complete until Laban, the human embodiment of the Kepalot, openly declared to Eliezer, come you who are blessed by God. In the merit of redeeming Eliezer's soul, Laban would later be reincarnated as Caleb. Any thoughts? No. When Eliezer first arrived at their house laden with gold and silver vessels, Rebecca's family assumed that they could receive a portion of gold and silver. Their greed accelerated their consent and overrode any concern for their sister's welfare. Now that Eliezer had given all the gold and silver to Rebecca, while they received mere gifts of fruits, they quickly changed their minds. It was in their interest to keep their now wealthy sister under their roof for as long as possible, and they raised the issue of Rebecca's consent as an excuse for their hesitance. Any thoughts? I will go. She said, I will go of my own accord, even if you do not desire it. Uh, the servant told Isaac, Eliezer revealed to him the miracles which had occurred that his journey had been shortened and that Rebecca had appeared during his prayer. I, any thoughts? No. I, any, any thoughts on the significance of Isaac and Rebecca? No. Isaac was comforted for the loss of his mother. The verse states that Isaac brought her to the tent of his mother, Sarah, suggesting that he brought her to the tent and, look, it was Sarah, his mother, uh, i.e. she became the likeness of Sarah, his mother. For as long as Sarah was alive, a candle burned from one Sabbath eve to the next. The dough would be blessed, and a cloud was attached to the tent. When she died, these things ceased, but when Rebecca arrived, they resumed. Any thoughts? 
Rashi bases comments on the midrash. However, he, what do you think is the significance of that? Any thoughts? Significance of which? The the dough and the the cloud and everything. Well, see, I'm not sure what this whole thing is trying to communicate. It sounds like to me like what he's trying to communicate is that there are there are formulas and requirements. Uh, and these are illustrating how those formulas and re requirements occur. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. No. Says Rashi based his comments on the midrash. However, he ignored the fourth practice mentioned there that Sarah's doors were always open for the poor. For Rashi brought only the three miracles that correspond to the three commandments for which women take the primary responsibility: separation, separating a portion of dough, lighting the Sabbath candles. And the laws of family purity symbolized by the cloud fixed the tent, since the fourth practice mentioned in the Midrash had no special significance. Rashi omitted it. Any thoughts? No. Yeah, that's the transcendent four. Um, in recent years, a custom for girls to light Sabbath candles before their marriage has reemerged. This is actually an ancient practice, which is indicated by Rashi's comment to verse 67 here we see that Rebecca lit candles because she was married for only after Isaac had taken her into the tent of Sarah his mother and witnessed her Sabbath candle burning for the entire week did he take her to be his wife if in fact it was primarily the observance of the commandment that proved to Isaac the suitability of Rebecca as a spouse and a mother in Israel it does no. Um, um, spiritual vitamin. Divine providence is continuously active every day and in every detail of your life. Supernal miraculous divine providence is not limited to revealed miracles, but also in ordinary life there is miraculous intervention, except that the one to whom a miracle occurs does not recognize his miracle. Any thoughts? Any doesn't? Yeah. Yeah, any doesn't? Nope. Do you think that's true that there's these miracles going on, like divine providence and stuff, and like that the world is like infused with all that? Any thoughts? Yeah, probably. So it says uh, her name was Keturah. This is Hagar. She was called Keturah because her deeds were as pleasant as incense. Keturet. Any thoughts? No. How could Hagar be described as a person whose deeds were pleasant as incense when after Abraham sent her away, she returned to idol worship? She must have repented before Abraham took her for the second time, and the Torah therefore calls her Keturah due to the sweet aroma of her repentance. Any thoughts? No. Abraham breathed the, his last and died. On the day that Abraham died, all the leaders of the world stood and said, Woe to the world that has lost its leader, and woe to the ship that has lost its captain. Any thoughts? No. Some people are natural leaders during a time of peace. They excel in calm environment, but when war strikes, they fail to stand out as a leader. For others, the opposite is the case. Their leadership qualities and greatness only emerge during a crisis, like a captain during a storm-tossed ship. When things calm down, however, they no longer shine. Abraham possessed both qualities. Therefore, when he died, he was eulogized by all the leaders of the world. Any thoughts? No. His sons, Isaac and it Ishmael buried him. Isaac is mentioned before his older brother Ishmael. From here we learn that Ishmael repented and allowed Isaac to go before him. 
After Abraham died, God blessed Isaac, his son. God came to console Isaac with words of comfort and offered uh, that are offered to the mourners. From here, we learn that comforting the bereaved is one of the attributes of God, which we are expected to emulate when the occasion demands it. Any thoughts? No, except what I've been saying. You think it's important to comfort the bereaved and all that? Oh, yeah, of course. How do, how do you do that? Sometimes you do it just by the quality of your presence. There's, nothing, there's no formula for how to do it. This is Kabbalah Bites. Until the time of Abraham, a man's hair did not whiten with old age. The abstractness of the color white represents the transcendent. Abraham was the first to draw a revelation of the transcendent in the world, which is the inner reason why his beard was the first to whiten. Any thoughts? Nope. Spiritual vitamin. During the soul's lifetime on earth, in partnership with the body, the soul is necessarily handicapped in certain respects by the requirements of the body, such as eating and drinking. Even a sadiq, pious person whose entire life is consecrated to God cannot escape the restraints of life in a material and physical environment. Consequently, the time that comes for the soul to return to home is essentially a release of the soul as the soul makes its ascent to the higher world no longer restrained by the physical body and physical environment. Any thoughts? No. You think that's true? I don't know. It says, connect to your lineage and discover the presence of your ancestors within you. You will receive the merit of all their efforts and be empowered to become fully human as best as you can. Any thoughts? I don't know what that means. You think that's important to connect to your lineage and discover the presence of your ancestors? And that, and that you will receive their merit? Do you think that's true or well, again, I see that whole thing in terms of the, the, the water in which you float your boat. Yeah, any thoughts there? No. Says so Rebecca felt the twins with within her struggling. Esau would move when she passed houses of idol worship, while Jacob would move when she passed houses of prayer. Within you are two impulses which struggle with each other. One inclines toward the mundane, while the other towards the godly. It is your choice which impulse to follow. Any thoughts? Yeah, well, that's a good metaphor for uh, the, the self and the transcendent self. Mm -hmm. So it says, Rebecca's pregnancy was extremely painful, leading her to wonder why she wanted to have children. Pain constricts your mind, eclipses all your concerns, makes you forgetful of your sacred mission in life. If pain presents itself, remember that it is only transient doorway, which you need to pass through. Any thoughts? What do you think about the idea that pain like restricts and all that? I, I kind of get that sense when I get sick, you know? Any thoughts? Yeah, it's very distracting. So blessing children. Before he died, Isaac wanted to bless his sons. Make a point of blessing your children, sharing your hopes and aspirations for them in a spirit of love. Any thoughts? Again, you're trying to make a formula out of it, but it's important to to be respectful to your children. Uh, yeah, probably bless them too, huh? Any thoughts on? Well, that's what that's what it means to bless them. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, thoughts on? No. So it says, uh, and these are the descendants of Isaac, the son of Abraham. Abraham was pure love which was not capable of redeeming the world of its chaos. Only through the restraint of Isaac was Abraham's love granted co continuity. 
Therefore, the Torah attributes the descendants of Isaac, i.e. continuity. But this mission, mission itself was powered by Abraham's love. Isaac was merely the son of Abraham. Any thoughts? No. So there needs to be, like, do you think that's true? There needs to be the restraint and tempora, like, severity as well as love? Any thoughts? Well, again, there's no formula for that. It says, Isaac prayed to God opposite his wife. It does not say that Isaac prayed for his wife, but that he prayed together with her. From here, we see that Rebecca and Isaac were both infertile and that both prayed to be healed. Why did our forefathers have difficulties with fer fertility? Any thoughts? No. Rabbi Isaac said, God yearns for the prayers of the righteous. That is why he initially caused them to be infertile, so that they would pray to him for help. Any thoughts? You think that's true? Yeah, he's trying to make an object lesson out of that whole story. Yeah, what's what's the metaphor of that story? Any thoughts? Well, we've talked about that many times. The metaphor is it's the metaphor for for transcending the ego's attempt to make things happen. Yeah, so she so she stopped trying to make things happen, and then she stopped becoming barren. Probably. It says, because she was barren. In fact, Isaac was also unable to have children. In this verse, the word for she is not spelled in the Torah in the usual manner. Hey, Yod, Aleph, but rather, Hey, Vav, Aleph, which can also be read as he, suggesting that Isaac also could not have children. Any thoughts? No. The children struggled inside her. When she passed by the entrance to the academy of Shem and Eber, Jacob would struggle to come out. When she passed the entrance of a temple of idolatry, Esau would struggle to come out. How could Isaac, our righteous patriarch, have a son whose very nature, even in the womb, was inclined toward idol worship? Any thoughts? I don't know where it gets the idea that the one son was inclined toward idol worship. You know, it just... It's from Midrash. This is from Midrash's. The... the, the they give the 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 sources after each one. Like it'll say, like, okay, you know, Rashi said that, or the Midrash said that. You know, these are like extra tales and everything. Any thoughts? Yeah, that's what I say. To me, all of that stuff just doesn't make sense. So it says God can either make a person's disposition naturally good or naturally bad. However, even if a person has a natural inclination to evil, that does not mean that he is evil per se. For a man is given free choice. The reason why he was given such an inclination was to rise to the challenge and overcome it. Esau was given a natural tendency to evil so that he could excel in the task of quashing the evil impulse. Any thoughts? Yeah. That's, that's, that's all a part of the awakening process, waking up and growing up. Pain pushes. It says, even though he failed in his task, you can nevertheless learn from Esau that if you have... A strong desire to do something bad, it means that you have been given a special divine mission of overcoming your inclination. Any thoughts? No. She went to ask God. Rebecca went to the Academy of Shem to ask what will happen in the end. Rebecca was not particularly concerned with the struggle between good and evil per se. She was more worried about the struggle's conclusion, what will happen in the end. We all experience a daily tug of war within our hearts and minds with selfish tendencies pitted against altruistic learnings. Such turmoil is perfectly natural, considering the dual tendencies planted within us, our good and evil impulses, 
and should not be the cause of any discouragement. Any thoughts? No. What do you think about the idea of like having good and evil impulses, like good and evil inclinations? Well, we've just been talking about that. It's the impulses of the ego and the impulses or the inspiration of uh, the transpersonal. So it says, taking the example of Rebecca, we ought to focus on the conclusion and ask ourselves, what will be in the end? The main thing is to guarantee that the pure voice has the last word. Two esteemed individuals are in your womb. Two kingdoms will separate from your innards. Why was Jacob the most perfect of all the patriarchs and Esau, who was so evil, linked to each other so uh, intimately? Why did God not at least bring them into the world through two different births? It is hard enough to understand how Esau... Uh, could have emerged at all from the womb of the righteous Rebecca, let alone at the same time as Jacob. Any thoughts? Kabbalah bites. Rebecca knew that her purpose in life was to activate, was to achieve tikkun for the sin of Adam and Eve. Tikkun occurs when the forces of good and evil, which have been inappropriately mingled through sin, are separated once again. But when Rebecca saw that the souls of Cain, Esau, and Abel, Jacob, were fighting in her womb in full force, with Esau seeking to kill Jacob, uh, she feared that Tikkun would not be achieved through her. The response given to her by Shem was that, to the contrary, in their lifetimes, Tikkun would occur. The elder son will serve the younger. Any thoughts? No, my only thought is that's probably enough for today. All right, well, let me let me try to call you again and see if it works. Ready? Okay. Not green, but it's not okay, we'll we'll try to figure out how to fix that. All right. Are they Yeah. Yeah, I, I tried. I tried to call you. It's not working. So, ready? Abraham yeah. Abraham responded. This is. This one is the only son of his mother, and that one is the only son of his mother. God added, the one whom you love, but I love both of them, Abraham insisted. Finally, God specified Isaac. Why was all of this necessary? Why did God not say in the first place, take Isaac, so that Abraham would be spared the shock of a sudden demand to sacrifice his son? Any thoughts? No. Uh, please take. God said to him, I beg you, pass this test for me, so that people will not say that the first nine tests were totally insignificant. The binding of Isaac was the ultimate test, since Abraham, who had devoted his life to promote awareness of the one God in the world, was asked to execute the only person who would continue this cause after him. This test would prove whether Abraham had promoted the awareness of God in the world for God's sake or for his own. Abraham's earlier test did not fully clarify this point, since it could be argued that even allowing himself to be burned in the fiery furnace at Ur of the Chaldeans was ultimately an act which would have furthered his life's mission. Abraham knew that giving up his life in public would have made a tremendous impression on all those present and would pro possibly be recorded as an act of true martyrdom for all time. While it appeared to be an act of total self-sacrifice, we cannot rule out the possibility that Abraham desired to be a martyr, and he entered the furnace because it suited him to do so, at least partially. Any thoughts? Well, 
I'd have to change my whole orientation toward my way of thinking about that. So only at the binding of Isaac, where Abraham was sacrificed, was asked to perform an act which was contrary to everything that he desired, and in total privacy, could it be proven without doubt that all Abraham's earlier trials were done all out of an unquestioning submission to God's will. Any thoughts? He saw his donkey out of love of God and earnestness to obey his command. Abraham disregarded his personal stature and insisted on saddling the donkey himself. This shows that intense love leads a person to disregard all formalities. Any thoughts? On the third day, Abraham looked around and he saw from afar. Even on the third day, his, his fervor had not diminished. After all the ordeal of travel and its delays, the fire in his heart and the power of his will still had not, want, had not waned. Abraham looked around, lifted up his eyes. He was still in a mood of elevation. It does. We're just working with um, LDS people. Uh, I'm having trouble following you because I keep hearing right. the voices in the background. Right, right. Can you, can you not be so loud now? Because I'm doing, I'm doing a thing right now. You can talk to someone else, dude. So it said, even on the third day, his fervor had not diminished. After all the ordeal of travel and its delays of fire in his heart and the power of his will still had not waned, Abraham looked around. He was still in a mood of elevation. Any thoughts? No. Um, spiritual vitamins. Of course, there are times when things do not go as expected or as desired, but the Torah has already forewarned us to regard such times as temporary trials and tests of our faith in God. As a matter of fact, the stronger your faith in God remains even under adverse circumstances, the sooner it will become clear it was all a matter of a test. Any thoughts? No. Hey, Frank, can you talk outside here? Take, take your son, etc. I did not alter the utterance of my lips. I never said to you, slaughter him, but rather bring him up. You have brought him up. Now take him down. Any thoughts? Yeah, well, again, <clears throat> he's talking about a literal oh, transaction rather than a metaphorical one. Wait, I have to, I, I'm supposed to read from this part. It says, here is a fire in the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Why did Isaac speak of the fire in the wood as if it were referring to a certain fire in wood in particular? When God commanded Abraham to please take your sons, your only one whom you love, Isaac, and go away to the land of Moriah and bring him up there for a burnt offering, Abraham's heart burned with fire to fulfill God's will. He was aware, however, that this enthusiasm was likely to wane during the uh, during the course of a three-day journey to the land of Moriah. So Abraham decided to act immediately, chopping some wood right away to ensure that his intense emotions would be put into action while they were still strong. Any thoughts? No. Isaac therefore asked, Here is a fire in the wood. The wood proves that you have a fiery passion to fulfill God's will, but where is the lamb? Why then do you need to offer meat? Your dedication to God has already been proven. A lamb should now suffice. Any thoughts? Now I know. Abraham said to God, I will explain my grievance before you. Beforehand, you said to me, your true descendants will be through Isaac. And then you retracted and said, please take your son and bring him up there for a burnt offering. Now you are saying, 
Do not stretch out your hand to slaughter the boy. God said to him, I shall not profane my covenant, nor shall I alter the utterance of my lips. Any thoughts? No. From when I said to you, please take your son, etc., I did not alter the utterance of my lips. I never said to you, slaughter him, but rather bring him up. You have brought him up, now take him down. Any thoughts? No. Now I know that you are a God-fearing man. Abraham was known for his tremendous love of God. Why was he uh, awarded the title God-fearing? Let us answer the question with another question. Why was the binding of Isaac an especially difficult trial for Abraham? We are speaking here of a man who had already willing to cast his own self in a fiery furnace rather than transgress the will of God. Surely then he would be willing to sacrifice his child. While Abraham did not know that this was only a test, he nevertheless felt something was lacking. Since it was not, in fact, God's will that Isaac should be slaughtered, Abraham failed to establish his formal sense of connectedness and attachment to God through the command. On the other hand, it was an explicit order from God, and he had to obey it. So for the first time, Abraham was forced to serve God entirely out of fear. There was no opportunity for positive feeling of love and connectedness in this emotionally empty deed, only fear and obedience. This was entirely against Abraham's nature and his usual mode of worship, and it presented a formidable test for him. Any thoughts? So, um, it says, uh, Kabbalah writes, Adam's sin was tantamount to the three cardinal sins of idol worship, murder, and infidelity. To achieve tikkun, spiritual healing for this, he was reincarnated into the, all three patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Isaac offered him his life as a burnt offering upon the altar to be slaughtered because his reincarnation was to achieve tikkun for the sin of murder. But since the murderous spark was not Isaac's sin, but Adam's, he was spared, and a ram was offered in its stead. Any thoughts? No. So upon passing the test, his primary achievement was highlighted. Now I know that you are a God-fearing man. Abraham brought down love to his generation from above, which is why he is referred to in scripture as Abraham, my lover. The love, however, was so intense it was, it was debilitating. Therefore, Gavura, severity, the fear of Isaac, also had to be brought into the world through Isaac, so that the deeds of love started by Abraham would endure. The fear of Isaac contained in love of Abraham, so that all future recipients could withstand it. Any thoughts? It was necessary then for the two of them, the love and the fear, to be commingled, and that was why Abraham was commanded to perform the binding of Isaac. When Abraham was forced to arouse cruelty from within, his own self, he had to draw on the fear of Isaac for the sake of his love of God, and this resulted in the quality of Isaac becoming subsumed within that of Abraham. This was the effect of containing the unbounded love, enabling all of us to receive it. Any thoughts? No. The second time, Abraham was sure that the angel who said, do not stretch out your hand to slaughter the boy, had to come to trick him and that God really did want him to slaughter Isaac. Therefore, it was necessary for God to call out to Abraham a second time to confirm that he had acted correctly. In the second calling, God promised that he would multiply your descendants and your sons like the stars of the heavens and like the sand that is on the seashore and your descendants will inherit the cities of your enemies. Be sure, but surely he had already promised this to Abraham before. In fact, however, God had merely promised that he would multiply Abraham's descendants, but the promise could not have been retracted if Abraham's descendants would have sinned. Here, however, God swore that he would keep his promise regarding, regardless of whether the Jewish people sinned or not. This constitutes a divine 
assurance of the redemption which is destined to come in the future. Any thoughts? No. Although this portion describes even after Sarah's passing, it is called the life of Sarah for her purpose in life now unfolded. Her son married the land of Israel began to be acquired. You are truly alive when you when your achievements are immortalized. Honoring the dead. Abraham's purchase of a plot for his wife is the first reference in the Bible to burial. Respecting the dead and ensuring prompt and proper burial is central to Jewish values. Any thoughts? No. What do you think about that? Is that important? Which? Bury of the dead. Uh, I don't know that it is. So respecting the dead and ensuring prompt and proper burial is central to Jewish values. Any thoughts? That, that. No. So it says a care of animals. Eliezer was assured that Rebekah was the correct wife for Isaac when in addition to offering him water, she offered to give him camels water to drink. Judaism prohibits the mistreatment of animals. We are even commanded to feed our animals before we feed ourselves. Any thoughts? No. Love. The Torah states that Isaac began to love Rebekah only after he had married her. Genuine love must be accompanied by commitment and care. Otherwise, it is nothing more than a self-gratifying infatuation. A lover is... Any thoughts? <clears throat> Yeah, it's easy to say I love you. Anybody can say it. So not easy. It's not. It's not. It's not uh, a transaction to to do it. Mm -hmm. Any other thoughts? No. <clears throat> so it says. A lover is eager to give as he or she is to receive, and every healthy, loving relationship needs to be nurtured constantly with increased trust and openness. Any thoughts? Well, well again, doing something, acting lovingly, emerges from the capacity to, to see others as, as your brother, or you are your brother. See others as a sense of oneness, so he emerges out of that awareness rather than as an act. Mm -hmm. Any thoughts there? No. So I am an immigrant and a resident among you. According to the midrash, he was saying, "If you wish to sell me a burial site, then I am like an immigrant and will purchase it from for you from a good price. But if not, I will be a resident and will take it by rights, since God said." To me, I will give the land to your descendants. Any thoughts? No. Spiritual vitamin. Your life is just long enough for you to fulfill your purpose on this earth. It is not a day too short, nor is it a day too long. If you let a single day or week, uh, let alone months, to pass by without fulfilling your purpose, it is an irretrievable loss both for you and for the universe at large. Any thoughts? Yeah, what is your purpose? Yeah, any thoughts? No. So it says, the people of Het answered, the people of Het said to Abraham, we know that in the future God is going to give all these lands to you and your descendants. Strike a covenant with us that the Jewish people will only inherit the city of Jebusites with the con consent of the Jebusite people who were descendants of Het. Abraham struck the covenant with them and purchased the cave of Machpelah. Any thoughts? No. Kabbalabites, it's full price. Why is it so tempting when we are offered something for free? The Zohar teaches that things which are free come from Sitra, Ahara, the demonic realm. Everything that is connected with your true destiny is connected with effort. But the demonic forces 
try to derail you with countless free offers. Any thoughts? Mm -hmm. So when Abraham acquired the holy cave of Machpelah, he was careful to pay its full price. Any thoughts? Mm -hmm. The cave of Machpelah. The cave was called Machpelah, meaning double, because it was doubled for couples. Four couples were buried there. Adam and Eve, Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob and Leah. Any thoughts? Mm -hmm. um, it says, God had blessed Abraham with ever, everything. Abraham was blessed with the attitude of being satisfied with his lot, never feeling that he was missing anything. If you crave nothing, then you have everything. Any thoughts? Yeah, it's Is that contentedness, though, or? No. That's being in the flow. So it's like not desiring, but, you know, going all out still, though, but. Yeah. Spiritual vitamins. Abraham, the first of the patriarchs, the first Jew, demonstrated the goal of a Jew, that wherever you may find yourself and in whatever company you may be, the focus of everyday life is to spread awareness of God, such that all those Around you see that God is God of the heavens and God of the earth. Any thoughts? Be insistent not to take my sons back there. Abraham did not want Isaac to marry a girl from Canaan, for the local people had a disposition towards self-indulgent desires. The family of Laban and Bethuel did not possess this predisposition, but on the other hand, they were idol worshippers. Any thoughts? Idol worship however, is not an inherited quality, but a cultural phenomenon. Therefore, Abraham requested that Isaac's wife should not be from Canaan, but from my birthplace, so that she should be a good disposition. And he insisted not to take my son back there, i.e. the girl must be removed from the idol-worshipping culture and brought to Isaac, and not the other way around. Any thoughts? God of the heavens, he did not say, and the God of the earth. As he had said above, I will make you swear by God, the God of the heavens and the God of the earth. Abraham said to him, Now he is the God of the heavens and the God of the earth, because I have made it habitual for creatures to mention him. But when he took me from my father's house, he was the uh, God of the heavens, but not the God of the earth, because mankind did not acknowledge him, and his name was not commonplace on the earth. Any thoughts? No, I'm not having any thoughts of any of this. Yeah, well, let's just do this one for now, and then and I'll try to call you on the thing later, see if it works. But it says, uh, oh, oh yeah, uh, t tell me, tell me if it works. Ready? Try to pick up your pick up your thing. Ready? Is it working? Well, see, I I answer it, but it doesn't connect. Okay, we'll try. Try right now. I thought I did. I just did. I said I answered it. But it's not connecting. Okay. Well, whatever. So it's not working. Whatever. So uh, in the hand were all the master's belongings. How did Eliezer carry all his master's belongings? Abraham wrote a, a deed stating that he had given everything he owned to Isaac as a gift, as they would jump at the chance to send him their daughter. Any thoughts? No. Spiritual vitamin. It is a fundamental principle of science that material things never become obliterated completely. How much more so everlasting spiritual things, including hereditary qualities of the spirit and character, which come down from generation to uh, of, fine, of fine ancestors. Any thoughts? No. Some parents think that when a child reaches the age of 20, the obligations of parenthood end. The son or daughter is now a mature adult who can and must learn to fend for himself. However, we can learn from... What do you think about that? Any thoughts? No. However, we can... Do you think that's true? 
However, we can learn from the conduct of Abraham that education never ceases. At this point, Isaac was 37 years old, and Abraham could have quite reasonably taken a back seat, allowing Isaac to make his own choices about where to live and to whom to marry. In fact, Abraham did precisely the opposite. Instead of relaxing and enjoying his own life, he relinquished his life savings and all his possessions, giving them to Isaac in an attempt to help him to find an appropriate wife. Any thoughts? I'm not sure. I don't remember that being a part of the story, but it might be. I feel like you would say, like, no, Isaac should do it his, you know, get a job and do it himself. Like, any thoughts? No, I said I didn't think no, that was no, a part but, of the story. Is, is, that, is that what you would say, though? I would not have a formula. So it says, from this we can learn that parenthood never ends. Even when child children become mature adults, parents... Uh, should be willing to sacrifice everything that they have for their child's benefit. Any thoughts? Well, again, that's 